0: This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan, and here is CBS News Business Editor Jill Schlesinger. Jill, yes. here we are with another debt crisis again, and uh, as you, as you may have heard, there's this uh, there's this debate over whether Joe Biden should negotiate with the Republicans or not. Where do you come down on this?
1: I hate the debt ceiling. <laughs> That's really how I feel. Uh, I went on the air last week and pounded the table and, on CBS Mornings, and uh, I I said, and I think I should just repeat exactly what I said, I am not into politics. I don't cover politics, but I care when politicians mess with my economy, our economy. And um, this is just a real uh, sore spot for me because it. I put it in the category of unforced errors, OK, what do I mean by that? You know, there are times where weird and bad stuff happens and those things we cannot control. You know, we cannot control a once in a century pandemic. Everybody involved did the best they could. Um, but, you know, in this situation... The debt ceiling, which is the legal limit on the total amount of federal debt that the government can accrue, um, this is something that is, sh- should routinely be dealt with. It, uh, we have uh, raised the debt ceiling 78 times to change the limit in some way since 1960. Increasing the debt ceiling is not authorizing new spending. It's just allowing lawmakers the ability to pay for the obligations both Democrats and Republicans voted for in the past, you know, like um, an unfunded tax cut in 2017 or emergency measures during the pandemic in 2020 and 21. And so um, for all the people who are grandstanding, all this is is just it, it's a, an administrative task, which is. You know, even the knuckleheads in D.C. can't figure out how to do. And so when they fight over it, it calls into question the ability for the U.S. government to kind of manage its finances. And that's not a good look for the rest of the world.
0: Have the Republicans specified what it is they would cut that's a that's a big enough spending item to make a difference in the in the debt?
1: No, because what is more fun to do is to talk in generalities instead of pinpointing what the issue is. So you imagine if a Republican representative went on the floor and said, you know what I would like to do for all of my constituents receiving Social Security, what I'd really like to do is I'd like to cut that amount in half. Yeah, there you go. That would be great. And then we, you know, so just to be clear, like what are the existing obligations? Social security and Medicare benefits. Uh, Let's cut those. No. Military salaries. The interest on the national debt itself. Um, The things that you would imagine that they are thinking about cutting won't make a difference anyway. And why are we talking about what we would cut when we know that, A lot of the debt that has accrued has accrued under both types of administrations, both Republicans and Democrats. We all went to the store. We bought flat screen TVs. Some of that was a little indulgent, but also we bought food and we bought uh, utilities and we we, we bought um, we had we we hired people to help protect us. All those things. Yeah. Was there some frivolous stuff in there? Yes. Is the majority of the debt that is built up because of frivolous stuff? No.
0: Let's talk about tax time because it's fun because yeah, <laughs> tax season's here. Uh, I hear the IRS is warning that refunds are going to be lower. Why?
1: Uh, because of all those COVID-19 relief measures, they're stopped. So no federal or state stimulus recovery rebates or credits, no enhanced child or dependent tax care cr- tax credits. You know, they were enhanced. They were made bigger. But now they're right. going back to what they were. No charitable deductions for um, people who file the standard deduction. So when those things go away, you sort of think back to maybe 2019. That's probably more of what your tax year will look like for the year 2022. And as a result, it Looks like the average tax refund, which last year was almost thirty two hundred dollars, probably going to more like twenty eight hundred or twenty nine hundred. It's not the end of the world, but it does make sense.
0: If you want to call the IRS because you have a question about this or something else,
1: do you get an answer? <laughs> it well, I mean, maybe we should start comparing it to the odds of hitting Powerball. Okay. (laughs) That's not fair. I feel bad for the IRS, man. I want them to have more people there because I really think they're underfunded and they've had their budget slash and people had to be let go. But just let me give you some of the numbers. The IRS received no less than 173 million calls last year. Okay. 173 million. Okay. 13% got through to somebody. One in eight.
0: That's very bad.
1: That's bad. Now, The additional staff for the IRS is incredibly important. It's probably not going to make this particular problem go away anytime soon. What I'm hopeful is that the additional people that have been hired at the IRS, what they will be able to do, hopefully, is work through the backlog of unprocessed returns that have built up over the pandemic and shockingly – and not surprisingly, though, is that some people still have not gotten their refunds from tax year 20, 2020, 21 or 22. The vast majority of those people, there are real issues with the returns. Some are unlucky. I mean, you can be the person who's a W-2 employee. You filed electronically last year and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. And there's nothing weird about your return. And we don't know where that is and what has happened with it. The IRS promises that the backlog has been going down very dramatically. And so maybe with a few extra people, a little more resources, they'll get through that backlog.
0: Well, there's this, there's this uh, budget item to boost staffing at the IRS. But my understanding is that's one of the things that they want to cut as part of this. It's whole the dumbest thing today. in the
1: world. I just want to point out how stupid that is as just an idea to cut. You know, for all the, uh, oh, they're, gonna, they're just going to audit people who make $60,000. That is absolutely not what's going to happen. I can almost guarantee that. Yeah, you can get unlucky and have an unprocessed return. You can get unlucky and be like tapped on the shoulder and be like, oh, you know what? We've got to pat you down at the airport. Right. Like you can get unlucky in lots of different situations. But these additional IRS employees are there to help work through systems to help us file our taxes more efficiently. So the idea that you're going to say, oh, you're going to you're going to just have to audit more people. You know who's not audited? The people who make a lot of money. They should be audited. I'm not saying that everyone's cheating who makes a lot of money, but if you have a complicated return, let me just like, point out to you the type of person who gets audited. You're self-employed. Last year, your return showed minus $22,000. You had a business loss. This year, your return has tons and tons and tons of, de- of deductions, same as last year, and all of a sudden, your income goes up fivefold. That's kind of like, hmm, wonder what happened. So it'll get flagged. And if you're done nothing except just you got lucky and you reported more income, fine. You send the IRS the documentation. It goes away. There's a lot of people who get inquiries from the IRS that go away. It's freaky. It's scary. But most of these things just do go away.
0: CBS News Business Editor Jill Schlesinger.
1: Thank you, Jill. Thank you.
0: This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. We've talked with Dr. Cohen before about intermittent fasting as a way to lose weight and to get healthy. Now there's some research on it. Dr.
2: Cohen.
0: Dr. Gordon Cohen, M.D. So tell me about this latest study, Dr.
3: Cohen. Well, this study was published in the Journal of the American Heart Association. So, you know, very reputable study from a very reputable institution. The whole notion of intermittent fasting really it's a diet trend that focuses on alternating fasting and eating it's based on the concept that there's this science of of chronobiology and that events in our life are tied to our natural circadian rhythm so that if we eat during certain windows of the day but and only during those windows of the day it could encourage weight loss The most popular intermittent fasting schedule is a time-restricted diet where people eat during a limited number of hours during the day. They asked 547 people to use a phone app to track their daily meals over a six-month period. They asked people to document how many meals they ate a day, and they had them in a very subjective way describe each meal as small, medium, or large. And then they had to also track how much weight they gained or lost. And what the study found was when they ate relative to the time when they woke up or went to sleep, when their eating window existed within that, didn't in fact impact weight. It didn't. It made no difference. It made no difference. It essentially blew apart the notion that eating during a narrow time window would in fact be related to, to weight loss, but what they found was the size the actual size of the participants meals people who ate more large or medium sized meals were more likely to gain weight while people who ate small meals were more likely to lose weight so well that makes time sense matter <laughs> yeah of course so time didn 't matter but but rather the size of the meal which is sort of intuitive to begin with so does this mean the whole fasting thing is bogus well I think there's a few challenges here, and even the scientists who conducted the study emphasized that this is an observational study. So researchers didn't actually control the conditions uh, while they were happening. They just essentially documented what was happening. So they didn't control, for example, the amount of calories that were consumed. And in fact, because of the subjective nature of relying on participants to describe their Meals is either large or small, and not log specific calorie counts. It made it challenging to actually determine what was happening. So I guess what the, this would suggest is there doesn't really seem to be any magic to eating at a specific time or eating within a specific window. But what I would say is, is it doesn't mean that the that the concept in and of itself is is useless, because if you happen to find. By restricting the time in which you eat that you feel that you eat less, then it's good for you. You still have to be cognizant of how much you're eating during that window. But if it helps you to restrict the amount of, e- of eating that you do, uh, then that's that's good. So if you can control those two factors, eating less often or eating less meals and uh, reducing the size of meals, then you know you should lose weight. So some people may find that helpful to be, by setting boundaries as to when they consume their meals, uh, they may find themselves eating less. Then, of course, they would lose weight. Don't you think that when you have a
0: a uh, survey where people have to write down everything they eat, just the very fact of writing it down encourages you to eat less? Because, you know, after a while, by the end of the day, you
3: see this list of stuff that you've been eating, you say – Yikes, <laughs> I don't need to eat anymore now. Yeah, so I, I strongly, strongly advocate for meal tracking. And I really think that everybody should uh, meal track. I, in fact, meal track. And there's numerous apps that you can download for your phone. And it's really helpful to write down everything that you eat and keep track of, you know, not just the number of calories you eat, but the makeup, the, the macros, so to speak, of what you eat in terms of the amount of protein, the amount of carbohydrate, the amount of fat, I myself, I mean I guess because I'm a you know, a a cardiac specialist, I might actually track the amount of cholesterol I eat because I try to eat as close to zero cholesterol as I can in a day. I think it's very, very helpful. And when you do track, you will actually find yourself controlling what you eat, whether it's a specific component of food like cholesterol or, or the amount of fat that you eat or the total number of, of calories that you eat. Now, it, it does take some practice to do this, right? At first You have to like weigh everything and measure everything when you get started. But eventually, you get to understand, you know, what a serving size is. You get to understand what, you know, a cup of rice might look like or a cup of almond milk might look like or something like that. You know, a slice of bread is not a slice of bread is not a slice of bread. Uh, So you need to be weighing the bread so you know what the different sizes of a slice look like in terms of their weight so you can accurately calculate the number of calories or whatever macros you're looking at in that slice of bread.
0: Dr. Gordon Cohen,
3: MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you.
0: Thanks, Dave. And we're going to go right into our talk with Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell. We caught up with him towards the end of the U.S. Conference of Mayors Winter Meeting in Washington, D.C. last week. They were focused on revitalizing downtowns, which have still had trouble recovering from the pandemic because Seattle certainly is not the only city with empty office buildings these days. You know, I'm bullish on downtown. In
4: other words, I I just believe that we have to keep it vibrant. But I think there's a balance between having a just residential but also look at, you have to look at the, uh, you know, the city is a economic engine and so we still have to make sure that businesses have a place to thrive and that, and it's safe. So my first responsibility is make sure that the area is safe such that employees will come back and tourists will spend dollars, consumer dollars down there. The fact of the matter is is that in in e-commerce world that many people's shopping habits have changed. And given that, we have to explore what will drive someone to go downtown. Is it music? Is it arts? Is it entertainment? Is it a restaurant? Is it daycare, affordable daycare? Is it an educational area? So this reimagining of the downtown gives us the opportunity. It's it's not gonna be a nine to five situation like perhaps it once was. It's a it's a twenty four hour facility. And now we have some great opportunities because we do have the sale convention center, we do have the waterfront, we do have a new aquarium. So compared to a lot of what the other mayors are facing, I think we have a great opportunity.
0: Well, I agree with you. What gets people downtown was number one safety. I would like. I mean, I go to the Pike Place Market uh, several times uh, a week, and it seems to be uh, thriving. So you got food, you got uh, entertainment, you got uh, arts events, and you should have a cop in every corner. And then making it easier to to start a business. Are you, are you convinced that it is still if if a guy or or a woman has a great idea for starting a new restaurant or some kind of uh, attraction? that they get the cooperation of the city and making it as easy as possible to set that up?
4: I do. And I'll tell you what we've done. And so, you know, I hired Markham McIntyre, the head of our office of economic development, and he knows business. He comes from the business sector. And so I make sure that he understands the need for us to have a vibrant and safe business environment. And quite candidly, that is a narrative coming out of our administration that for me, businesses means jobs and jobs for everybody, and so it's just not C-level CTO people, it's the security guard and the mid-level manager and the entry-level managers, the student intern. So again, our policies, when you look at again the 30 businesses that we uh, put forth in our Seattle Restored uh, program, looking at vacant storefronts downtown, that's intentionality in terms of making sure everyone has an opportunity.
0: Are you satisfied that the the people involved in this, uh, in fact, do have a solution? And if they do, can you say when we will begin to see a substantial difference?
4: Am I satisfied? No, I'll just be direct. I won't be satisfied until everyone is housed and the city feels as though we've made incredible progress. And, And I'm not pointing the finger that the city of Seattle is a funder that we have to make sure that our dollars use efficiently and effectively. And I will just say that these are not leaderless efforts that, uh, again, my staff, you know, when I changed the structure of my administrative, my uh, executive staff, I made sure one person was in charge of everything we do with respect to homelessness and housing. It's a new approach and very nimble, effective approach. So, no, I, I don't think anyone is quite frankly satisfied with the progress our city or our region Uh, has in this regard. I am committed to the Regional Homelessness uh, Authority's success, and so I have to drive it. But no, I'm not going to say I'm satisfied by any stretch of the imagination. I would like to see uh, safe lots for RVs and campers and vehicles, and we're hoping the RHA develops the criteria by which a lot can be used and where that can be placed. And so I want people to be able to walk, ride, or jog down a street or ride their bike and say, this city is coming back to where it's supposed to be.
0: Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell. Mr. Mayor, thank you. Thank you, Dave. Have a great day. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Time for Crime and Punishment with Casey McNerthney of the King County Prosecutor's Office. And uh, Casey, it occurred to me, we we had that story last week about the the... Two homicides in Des Moines. And you were telling me that anytime there's a crime like that, it's not just the cops that show up. The King County Prosecutor's Office uh, sends out a, a specialist to look over the
5: crime scene. So tell us how that works. So, the way that works is whichever of the thirty nine police agencies in King County has the call out, they call our office and there's somebody who's on call twenty four hours a day and it always happens at you know in the middle of the night or on a holiday or, or on a weekend where people get a call that there's been a homicide or a suspicious death, and they want a prosecutor there too and the prosecutor almost always who handles that first call out is the one who follows the case all the way through trial and One of the people who I talked to for this segment was Don Raz, who started in that unit in 1997. The unit started in in 1995 as a way to to try to get a better sense of every aspect of the crime, because the person who's at that first scene, there might be search warrants that are needed or legal questions that the detectives have, and they want somebody there to say, hey, you know – what you don't want is something to come up and then a choice to be made and have it not be legally sound when it gets to trial.
0: So he's so, there hey, to make sure that the, the crime scene is is being processed properly.
5: Right. Exactly. Yeah. That or or just having an understanding of, of be, if the people who present it to the court and to the public can also have an, an understanding just beyond the forensics and the photos You know, to say I was there and I watched this happen. You know, the investigation elements that are handled by the police. And he was telling you that sometimes you go to a crime scene and you determine that maybe there's not a case here. Right. Yeah. And, and that's that's the majority of times where there's an arrest in a murder case. There's a rush file that's handled, a, a, a charges rush filed by the King County Prosecutor's Office. But there's there are times occasionally where you have somebody who, you know, it, it might be a case of self-defense and or it, there might be additional investigation that's needed you want to make sure that the right call is being made. And by having, you know, for more than two decades, having a prosecutor there from the start of the investigation to observe it can can make sure that everybody's on the same page and that things can be presented to the court the way they actually are. And that's that's not always the case in other states or other other counties. I,
0: I find it hard to believe that there are people who who actually are able to do this kind of thing day in and day out, get a call in the middle of the night and and, you know, go to a murder scene and um, you you talked to Don Raz as you mentioned, and here's what he said about how to how he manages to what keep his objectivity.
5: You really have to have this mindset that what you're observing at that point is evidence. And I know that sounds shocking to a person who doesn't do this as their work, but you know, I view that whatever made this person human has now passed on by the time I show up to the scene and he's been doing this for how many years now he's in his 21st year so he 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 spent time with this unit and the sexually violent predator unit which is separate but last year alone he had 22 homicide call outs and there's 13 cases this year that are expected to go to trial and when you look at his his office there's a whiteboard and it looks exactly like you would see on a tv drama where he's got the cases that are in black that are going to trial the cases in in red that are unsolved and the cases that are in blue that are still under investigation. And and if, if you look at any one of those, Don or anybody from MDOF can tell you exactly the details of being at that scene. And, and that's the value of, of having that be presented to court. And there's, there's even a case that he talked about from 1997 that, that he remembers clearly, that he's hopeful that this year there might be a breakthrough genetic genealogy that uh, might get a break in the case.
0: You throw an acronym out there, MDOP, which is Most Dangerous Offender Project, right?
5: Yeah, that's the official name for this group of, of experienced senior deputy prosecutors who respond at all hours to these homicide scenes because that was the official name that it was given by Jeff Baird, who uh, was the prosecutor who started this back in 95.
0: Yeah. And you also asked him about which cases are the worst for him to respond to. Here's what he said.
5: The ones that involve children are uh the worst and i distinctly remember a father who a case in bellevue where a father killed his little five-year-old and then proceeded to kill his dogs and kill himself and just um how ironic it was he did this in his home where he would have you know uh the world's greatest father coffee cup or uh an area of the house where it was all the daughters play things
0: that's the part i think would be really tough to to compartmentalize when you go to a scene like that
5: yeah it's a you know and, and every one of them like you you can't unsee it you remember those yeah. and that's and that's part of why it's important to, to share that with the jury too so it's not just it's it's a delicate balance of being human but also processing it as evidence and it's it, uh Really, I wish that every county in the state or nation had an opportunity like we have here. Casey
0: McDurthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. Casey, thanks very much.
5: You bet. Thanks, Dave.
2: Your Daily Dose of Kindness now brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. When you hear the term essential workers, delivery drivers come to mind. In fact, during the peak of the pandemic, UPS drivers were a lifeline to many people, not just delivering goods, but also some human contact. And in one Virginia community, they decided that special effort deserved recognition. Anthony was completing his delivery route recently when he drove up to this. His customers lined the streets to thank him for his essential work, adults, kids, even dogs showed up to cheer him on. Patty, who's lived in the neighborhood, telling USA Today.
5: The biggest gift for me is watching his face as he saw why all those people were there.
2: They appreciate him. Anthony has been a UPS driver for the neighborhood for five years now. Anthony makes you feel like you're his favorite customer. He makes you feel like you're the only person he's serving. That is a massive gift to be able to give to somebody.
5: And it's something that you, as the giver, Probably really don't recognize because
2: it's just who you are. So you need to be told. And that's why the neighborhood lined the streets to say thank you. Anthony was one of Patty's first friends in her new neighborhood. She moved to Halsey right at the beginning of the pandemic. She definitely lucked out with that UPS driver. Dave?
0: Yes. And now, from the G Ursula Show, which kicks off right after nine o'clock news at Kyra News Radio, here is G Scott. And I hear that the the topic of discussion around the newsroom this morning has been whether grandparents are more protective of their grandkids than they were of their own children. What brought that up?
6: That's pretty easy. <laughs> You know, uh, first, I I, I agree with this. Uh, I'm that way. Uh, I think a lot of uh, grandparents are that way. And it's real simple. When you're parents, a lot of times you start out being in your 20s. (laughs) <laughs> right, twenties or maybe early thirties when you're a parent, and then maybe when you're a grandparent, you're in your late forties and into your fifties. Let's be you you've matured. You understand life a lot more. You have a better understanding. You, you you look back at the things, you realize that when you were a young parent, you look at all of the mistakes that you've made, you're able to reminisce and look back and be like, ooh, ooh I wasn't a very good parent there. Ooh, I wasn't a very good parent there. We realize that we were not perfect parents. So then you, when you become grandparents, it's the easy thing to do. First of all, we don't have to do all the hard work the parents do. <laughs> uh, and, and, and and number two, we get to be looked at as the hero all the time and spoiling. But overall, Dave and Colleen, I think what it comes down to is, is the older we get, the better we get. And the overall view that we have on life and parenting, it's just better. It makes sense.
2: More fearful, though? because yeah, that's the catalyst yeah exactly. that's the catalyst for this i saw it was a new york times article and somebody had written into the advice column saying that you know my nine-year-old granddaughter she gets off the bus and she walks you know about a, a quarter mile home i think it was a quarter it was something really yeah a quarter mile home and you know my son won't you know let me hire her a nanny to walk her that quarter mile it's too dangerous for her to do and all of it and and the the son is going it's it's just our neighborhood she we just has to walk from the bus to our house. It's fine. And then there was a comment under that of somebody noting that they do think grandparents today are more fearful than they should be because they consume so much more news. Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, it's that.
6: But look, let's be real. I look at the things that my parents let me do back in the day. There's no way in the world that I would want my granddaughter but to why? be doing that.
2: Because even the FBI studies show that crime is, we're actually safer today than we've ever have been. You're, mm-hmm. being, you're being influenced by the things that you read, the things that you hear. If you only hear the bad, how could you possibly okay. believe anything good So, happened? So
6: for example, I'm saying, let's just be simple. Okay. When I was younger, I would leave the house. Mom I'm Dad, I'm going outside. Same. Mm-hmm. And they would not see me till dinner for hours yeah same and today there is no way in the world and guess what it shouldn't happen that way because there was a there was a lot of unreported crimes when we were growing up too that happened that I think gets reported more today hmm. and so what I'm saying is is there's no way in the world. Most parents today would be like, okay, little Steve, little
2: Johnny. See you later. So see why? you around six because or seven. think it's more dangerous or because it is. I don't remember. I remember, go, again, I'm with you. I don't know if I would ever let my daughters go walk through the park and all the trails and be alone for hours with no contact, right? Because we had no cell phones back mm-hmm. then either. However, when I was out doing that, unless there was a close call I wasn't aware of, we never encountered danger.
6: Yeah, but that's the thing. There was a lot of things that we came in, that me and my friends came in contact sure. with. We had that, different upbringings. I, think. I <laughs> did not bring and tell my parents about, yeah. and 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 not just the what you should fear of others and other situations out there. You should also fear your child not being accounted for for six or seven hours of because what they can do. You know, the most trouble I got into
2: was when I was bored (laughs) or
6: or I knew I wasn't going to have any type of uh, any type of parents, any supervision.
2: But if you were supervised, would that have changed or would you have just tried to sneak around to do it anyway? That's the problem. I think there's parents can try to helicopter.
6: I think there's a lot of things that I wouldn't have done if I had more supervision. And now, look, I grew up. The son of law enforcement. My mom, probation yeah. officer. Dad was a cop, right? And still, I was out there unsupervised. Yeah, because <laughs> that's just how it was.
0: So, would you let a kid walk to school by herself today? Oh, you snuck in herself. But yeah.
2: well, he's got granddaughters. I, I, I know.
0: Uh, no, no,
6: absolutely not. Because it takes. Five to ten seconds. Accidents don't make appointments. Now, I'll maybe think about it for, I'm, uh, you know, maybe grandson. I'll think about, yeah, yeah.
2: L- little girl, no, no, no. So a ten-year-old boy is more able to protect himself from a kidnapper than a ten-year-old girl?
6: Call my mind warped, but I would be more comfortable with a ten-year-old boy walking to school than the ten-year-old girl. Why? Yes. Why?
2: What makes ten-year-old boys more capable?
6: I'm not saying I'm not talking about capable. I'm just talking about like I'm going to go with the odds here. And unfortunately, I think in my mind, the sickos in the world, right, will let the 10-year-old boy get a pass. But sometimes look at the 10-year-old girl. So that's just in my mind. I have no data right now in okay. front of me. That's I just no, I, this is gut feeling.
2: Well, what about you, Dave? You haven't answered and you're a grandpa. Are you more protective mm-hmm. of your granddaughters than you were of well, your what own I, children? Well, I'm
0: around them. I've always been protected by it. We let both girls go to school. I lost my youngest daughter in Factoria Mall once, which was very bad. <laughs> Fortunately, I found her. Okay,
2: good. Jeez. Yeah, I, I believe you did find her because you're still yeah. in contact. Yeah. But yeah. What, for, with your grandkids, do you find yourself being a bit more cautious?
0: I, I When I'm with my grandkids, I feel like I'm a Secret Service agent. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I'm looking. And my head's on the swivel. Yeah.
2: And is that because of danger or because they aren't your just kids? because they're my grandchildren. Okay. I don't anything to happen to Got it, got it.
0: See, Interesting Scott, discussion. 9 o'clock on Cairo News Radio. Seattle's Morning News. Should clergy be required to report child abuse when they see it or when they hear about it during a confession? And should the ultra rich be subject to a wealth tax? Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich joins us now with the latest from the legislative session in Olympia. Matt. Morning, Dave. Uh, we're entering our third week now, and
7: uh, this is a time when, again, people are still throwing out ideas, and I like to pick out bills that would be easy to understand, and that's is why um, I'm, I'm throwing out this one. Uh, just like you said, the, the they're considering... Uh, adding the clergy to a long list of what they call mandatory reporters uh, of child abuse. And, you know, I think common sense told you, what, why hasn't the clergy, given everything that's happened in the ca- Catholic Church, yeah. why hasn't the clergy been added to this list? This, I mean, this list includes physicians, law enforcement, psychologists, people who have confidences, like a physician or a psychiatrist, if they hear uh, a report of abuse, either by the abuser or it's a child, they are they are mandated to report it to the authorities. Otherwise, it's a gross misdemeanor. They can be uh, thrown in jail for it. So, so there's this proposal now to add clergy, and in, that includes and it wasn't presented this way originally. Confessions. Originally, mm-hmm. it was presented that confessions would be exempt. And Representative Republican Representative Tom Dent actually voted against the bill because once they included confessions, he was against it. I'm as passionate as anybody about these children. We're going into a confidential setting, which is, uh, you know, a confession with clergy. But it's only kind of confidential. And so an individual then doesn't go to confession because, well, it's only kind of confidential. And I think it has to be either confidential or not. And he makes a good point there for that argument. Republicans voted against the bill. Now, Christina DeLeon was the, believe it or not, the only member of the public that testified either for or against this uh, bill. She was in
1: favor to call acknowledging or providing a safe haven for a known abuser, sacred or part of a spiritual practice should truly be unconscionable.
7: And again, Dave, I think that's why I picked this bill because I did not know that the clergy was not part of this mandatory list and so we're going to find out if, the it's, again, this yeah. is a democratic
0: proposal, see if this is going to have any legs. Yeah, no, I, I, that, that's been a uh, pretty solid, I think, in, in most states, that because confession is considered confidential, you can't mandate a priest to do it. My, now, I,
7: I, now, we would be the seventh state to actually require clergy to re, report child abuse I do not know in the other states if confession is part of that.
0: So uh, yeah. that's going to be the big contentious point here. See, I would hope, I don't, I don't know what the fine points are of canon law, but I would hope that if somebody gives a confession and the priest knows him and there's some sort of child abuse going on, that, all right, maybe he doesn't go to the public authorities, but he does whatever he can to either uh, alert the family of the targeted child, or to somehow uh, seek help for the guy. to Because even though the confession is confidential, I think it's unconscionable to know that this is going on in your parish and not do anything about it.
7: There was one amendment there, Dave, that uh, I don't know if it's going to last all the way to the floor, if it gets that far, but they're going to include any member of the religious organization. So if it's the priest, obviously, but also... Anybody who works for that particular church or religious, mm-hmm. religious organization, if they hear a report of child abuse, they have to report it. But it's a different thing when, it, when we're talking about confession. Yeah. OK. Anyway, wealth tax. Wealth tax. I know you like to talk about this kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> the uh, last week, the House and Senate Democrats rolled out what they call a wealth tax proposal. Basically, it would treat stocks, bonds and other financial assets as property and impose a 1% tax on that property. But the first quarter of a billion dollars, that's 250 million uh, would be exempt. Now this money would go toward education and housing and disability services. Now, As with any tax in this state, there is the Constitution says there is no income tax. And there is always the debate if income is property, Mm -hmm. um, therefore, maybe you cannot tax this. Now, Noelle Frame is the sponsor of the bill, and she's fully expecting a lawsuit by the Republican challengers.
2: Every time that we make changes to demand that the wealthy pay what they owe, they sue us. That's what they do in the history of the united states and here in washington state uh there's a long track record of the wealthy suing to try to avoid taxation i have no doubt that they'll do it this time too
0: okay but but with this idea what would be the grounds there because the whole the whole reason that the income tax was uh was taken off the table by at least you know conservatives is that yes under state law income is considered property so Mm. what they're saying here is that okay well then wealth is clearly considered property And you are allowed to place a 1% tax on property, so there is already the legal framework for a wealth tax in this state, isn't there?
7: Well, and what what they what the Democrats are using is the power of exemption. They say that there's broad use in this state of the allowance of an exemption for a property tax, and because they're providing a quarter of a million, quarter of a billion dollar exemption here, mm-hmm. and it's it's uh, it's very simple. Anybody who, and well, I should also say they've calculated that this affects 700 people yeah. in the state of
0: Washington. We're talking about a quarter million. So, it'd be a quarter million uh per year right correct correct but it's that but because
7: they're providing an exemption mm-hmm. that is allowing them to exercise this tax mm-hmm. um, um you know again everything that's we've talked about in terms of property tax we have a capital gains tax that's cor- currently in the court this Thursday um the state supreme court is hearing arguments about an excise tax uh is that considered constitutional or not so you may pass something like this this year, fully expect it to go to the courts, and the state supreme court is going to en- end up answering all these questions. All right. And um, one more thing, you know, the there, this is a tax week. You know, today they're talking about raising, allowing cities and counties to raise the sales tax by zero one percent uh, mm-hmm. to raise money for police officers. Uh, again, it was tried last time, got stalled. Um, you know, all these tax bills got. So I, I should bring up that there was a one percent cross the board wealth t- kind of a income t- uh, excise tax across the board that was passed two years ago. Again, that failed. Uh, it just got stalled. It didn't happen. So this this session, this is the big attempt to raise taxes in a unique way, using the exemption provisions in the state constitution. I thought they had this
0: huge surplus. Why'd they have to raise taxes?
7: You're right. They have a $4 billion surplus. But And again, the the proposals by the Republicans is already laid out to give the average person some money back from this surplus, just help the middle class tax uh, payer. But that's uh, the Democrats have already lined up how they're going to spend the money.
0: Yeah, Kyrie News Radio's Matt Markovich. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome, Dave. I'm Dave Ross,
2: And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News.
0: You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.